Welcome back. Good to see you all. We have uh, still a few items that we want to cover in our discussion. Uh, before we do, I would like to just mention that, um, as I said before, during the last several days, we've been taping a series here called God's Great Prophetic Chain. Basically, it's 10 presentations following the trajectory of Bible prophecy, link after link. Uh, this series uh, will be available from Secrets Unsealed. It's also on YouTube. We live streamed it. And also, all of the lectures in written form are available in a syllabus. So I would encourage all of those who are um, watching this program uh, to get this series on DVD uh, if you don't watch it on YouTube and to get the syllabus because it'll give you the framework for everything that we're talking about here uh, in this particular uh, panel discussion this afternoon. So welcome back, guys. Um, it's been a real joy and a real pleasure discussing these issues with you. And uh, what we want to do now is uh, perhaps deal with the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. Revelation 13 verse 11 says that this beast that rises from the earth, which we believe to be the United States, has two horns like a lamb. And we've understood this to mean uh, that the United States in its origins uh, sustained the idea of civil and religious liberty, which is based on the idea of separation of church and state. Because when you, what happens is when you enforce religion, people not only lose their religious rights, they lose their civil rights as well. Uh, you know, for example, when the Sunday law is, uh, is enacted in the United States, is that going to affect our freedom of speech? Is it going to affect our freedom of assembly on the Sabbath? Are we going to be able to ask the government for a redress of grievances? No. So once the government gets involved in religious legislation, you also lose civil rights. So these are the two horns like a lamb, civil and religious liberty, which is based on the idea of two kingdoms in the United States, the church and the state, each functioning with its sword, separate from one from the other, not together, but separate. The church operating as church and the state operating, operating as state. And um, I believe the First Amendment to the Constitution contains the two horns like a lamb. Because uh, what does the First Amendment guarantee? Maybe uh, Pastor Jensen, who is the, um, the, the historian, the authority on these issues of early America and the Constitution and so on, can help us. There are 16 key words in the First Amendment that deals with religious liberty, and they are Congress, which initially referred to the federal government, shall make no law respecting, that is having to do anything with, an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. These two clauses of the Bill, uh, Bill of Rights are known as the Establishment Clause, which sometimes is referred to as freedom from religion, which prevents Congress and through the 14th Amendment also states from enacting any laws that promote religion or religious activities. And then the second clause of that, the free exercise clause, commonly referred to as freedom of religion, prevents the government from inhibiting or hindering the exercise of religion. So in simple terms, the government is to be neutral toward religion, uh, accommodating it, 
but never advocating it. Sometimes you'll hear the religious right say, well, you know, um, the Constitution of the USSR uh, also has a phrase about separation of church and state. Uh, and that's true to a certain extent, but theirs is a hostile separation, and as envisioned, we can talk more maybe about the separation principle itself and where it came from, but it's to be a friendly separation, each respecting the rights and privileges of others. As uh, Bob Maddox, who was a Southern Baptist minister, and he used to be the president of Americans United for Separation of Church and State, which I belonged to for a number of years out of Silver Spring, Maryland, he, he used this analogy or illustration. He said, church and state should be good neighbors, but they should um, never get married and they should not be in the same bed together. So uh, <laughs> I, I think that uh, illustration really gives a graphic description of the relationship uh, between uh, the two. So you have these two spheres and, you know, we've talked about the two horns. And just a simple side point, but, you know, the horns on an animal are not joined together. It's not like a unicorn where the two horns are stuck. They're separate here on each side of the head. And so even that suggests that there's not to be a union uh, between the two. Okay, now uh, you've discussed the first two clauses of the First Amendment, which guarantee religious rights. But the First Amendment also guarantees civil rights. So the two horns like a lamb are contained in the First Amendment to the Constitution because uh, the third clause of the First Amendment says that, uh, that Congress can, cannot make any law that abridges the freedom of speech, the freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, and the, uh, the right to petition uh, the government for a redress of, of grievances. So basically... Uh, the First Amendment uh, guarantees full civil and religious liberty. Yeah, you have the two horns like a lamb. Now, um, let me ask this, and maybe I'll ask Dustin, because Dustin has been very quiet uh, for a while here, so I got I to gotta shoot a good question at him. Um, the book of Revelation not only says that uh, the beast from the earth will make an image of the first beast, but it also says that it will enforce the mark of the first beast. How do we understand the, the meaning of the mark of the first beast? Well, it's funny you ask that. I recently pulled out some old books from my, uh, my garage and I had a little Catholic catechism. And I remembered from a series I watched a long time ago that on page 51, I think, of that catechism uh, gave uh, an answer uh, to a question that was asked, why do we keep Sunday instead of Sabbath? And the answer was given because the Catholic Church changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. And then the question was, why? Uh, why did they do this? And it, it went on to say that they had the authority to do this. And so that, that is a mark. It says it's a mark of her ecclesiastical power. We've, we've uh, read quotes that, um, that demonstrate that, that she views that as a her right to do. That is, a, that is a mark of her ecclesiastical authority. So enforced Sunday worship uh, will, will end up being this mark of authority that she uh, enforces upon the world. So basically, uh, Protestants and uh, Roman Catholics are in the same boat when it comes to the issue of Sunday observance. And um, there's many quotations by writers, Roman Catholic writers, who say that Protestants in keeping Sunday as a day of worship are accepting the authority 
of the Roman Catholic Church, even though they might not want to admit it openly. Uh, you know, if the Roman Catholic Church says we change the law, which uh, the little horn says it would think to change God's law, uh, then uh, Protestants are simply accepting the authority of the papacy in the change of the day, whether they want to admit it or not, because it's not in the Bible. Certainly the change of the day of worship is not to be found in the Bible. So um, I, we believe that the time is coming when this is going to uh, be enforced. And Ellen White, of course, says that um, in harmony with the Bible, that not only will Sunday be enforced as the day of worship, but ultimately an anti-Sabbath law will also be proclaimed and uh, God's people will be forbidden from keeping the Sabbath. Um, so that leads me to the next question, and uh, it's this. Um, how is it possible that Protestants would be so interested in cozying up with the papacy uh, these days? I mean, if you go back to the days of uh, when John Kennedy was running for president, uh, Americans were very suspicious of the papacy. In fact, John Kennedy had to go to the Ministerial Association in Houston and he had to say, well, you know, if I'm elected president, I won't get my orders from the Pope and I believe in separation of church and state. He had to explain that. These days, I mean, Protestants are, have really cozied up to the papacy. Um, so, Daniel, you look like you're tremendously anxious to talk about this uh, close relationship between the papacy and, and Protestants. Most of the, I wasn't listening to most of the comments, so you're going to have to skip me on this one. Let me jog your memory a little bit. The, the Protestants cozying up with the papacy, like the Tony Palmer affair, for example. Well, that, that's a perfect, that's okay. a perfect example, Good. because um, I believe most of us were startled to uh, watch Tony Palmer in front of an evangelical conference and declare to all of these evangelical leaders that the protest is over. And if the protest is over, then how can there be a Protestant? And that was followed by, I don't know if it was a standing ovation, but there were cheers. All these evangelical leaders agreed with him. And so they, that is a demonstration of them wanting to cozy up to the papacy. They see no problem with it. They've forgotten our past. They don't realize that those who established their very own churches would die for their faith, would die for their Protestant faith. In a very short time, on the 16th of this month that we're in, so it'll be 7-16-16, we have what's coming uh, is something that I'm going to be able to go and, and distribute literature at, and also I've been asked to speak there. Uh, Reset 2016 is a place where Protestants all over North America are gathering together at the White House Mall, and they will be there to demonstrate that they want unity amidst the various denominations, and they also probably chose the White House to be showing them that they want some support from the state as well. And one of the things that they really wanted was the Pope to be there, these are Protestants, remember, but the Pope couldn't be there. So what he's going to do is he's going to send a video of himself and he's going to be able to address them there. Now, I recently, within a three or four days, saw a video of Pope, the, the Pope. He was sitting kind of in a selfie video and he held up a T-shirt that said, Together 
all the way down with the American flag at the bottom, if I remember correctly. And he was encouraging everybody to get this T-shirt so that, of course, they can show that they are unified and together in what he would call love. Well, you and, just, and they've said that the, that the only point on the agenda is Jesus. Doesn't that sound nice? Yes. Um, so to just elaborate on what both of them have said is Protestants, uh, as Dustin said, first of all, have forgotten the history of the papacy, um, you know, the way they have acted in the past. They've misunderstood, they've misinterpreted uh, the prophecies of the Bible that tell us what's going to happen in the end. Um, but I'd like to offer a yet a third reason uh, and maybe even a fourth. Yeah, I'll add two more. Um, a third reason is that many Protestants no longer, they believe that the Catholic Church is different than what it used to be. Even oh, Christian. huh? Even, even, yes, even Christian. You know, it's interesting. Over the years, I've, I've worked with a number of Catholics and probably baptized more Catholics than anybody. And many times, you know, they'll, somebody will ask them, are you a Christian? to the, these Catholics to say, no, we're not Christian, we're Catholic. They say that themselves. I always found that strange. But anyway, <laughs> um, they, they think that, you know, some of you, if you've grown up in the Catholic Church, you know, remember the Friday abstinence from meat and some things. But the core beliefs of the Catholic Church, the, the intercession of the Virgin Mary, uh, the infallibility of the Pope, and some of these things, the Petron doctrine of the papacy, that he's apostolic succession in line with Peter being the first Pope, those core beliefs are never going to change. And so the, the changes that we see are peripheral on the surface. And Ellen White makes a very interesting statement. Steve and I have talked about it several times in Great Controversy. Beneath the uh, variable change of the chameleon, the appearance of the chameleon is the invariable venom of the serpent, something to that effect. In other words, they present, as she says, a fair front uh, to the world, but underneath is, is the dragon, you see. And then I would like to even offer a fourth reason, which you touched on, Daniel, and that is uh, misunderstanding the prayer of Jesus in John 17, that they, may, they all may be one as we are one. We are living in a time when the ecumenical movement uh, is, is the big thing right now. We dare not speak against another church. Uh, we dare not promote our own church uh, at the expense of somebody else. Hey, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's just all come together and shake hands and sing Kumbaya, and the world will be fine. Uh, you know, um, but Jesus' prayer for unity was not an organic ecclesiastical unity by creating some super church. Rather, it was a unity that was based on scriptural truth. Uh, and that's what's being for, forgotten. Um, very quickly, I, I know our time's running out. Um, in the San Jose area, I was part of a ministerial association that was somewhat unique in that we had Catholics in that association. Usually it's just Protestants. And I had gotten to know um, the, the nuns and the priests from St. Lucy's Catholic Church quite well. And every January, there is in the Christian calendar for those that are liturgical churches what is known as the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity. And so Sister Rosalie, you know, we'd meet in different churches each month, and we'd have a discussion question as we're eating our lunch, and then we'd get into business. And so she asked the other clergyman, yeah, what do you think about this idea of, you know, all of the Christians coming together? And they were all just raving, oh, what a wonderful thing it is. Let's lay aside our differences. And after all these glowing reports, Sister Rosalie turned to me and Pastor Jensen, what do you think? 
well, you know, after all of these things, I was wondering, man, I'm going to spoil the party here. <laughs> and so I asked God to give, give me some wisdom. And uh, uh, I said, well, you know, I think it's, it's, it's helpful when we respect uh, other religions and treat everybody with tolerance and, and whatever, and we can, we can learn from each other. But I said, when you stop and think about it, uh, in order for all the churches to come together and agree you would have to throw away your distinctive doctrines. And once you do that, you would no longer have an individual church, an identity. If you threw away what the Methodists believe, the Presbyterians believe, and come up with something that's the lowest common denominator, you're going to end up with nothing. And, and, and so you, you've lost the very reason for your existence as a church. And so I elaborated on that point and praise God. They said, you know, we never thought of it that way. But we're living in this age of the ecumenical movement and everybody has to be politically and religiously correct. Yeah, and people these days, they don't want doctrine. They want an experience. And uh, a religious um, life that is guided by experience or feelings or emotions is very dangerous because the devil can deceive your feelings and your emotions. But um, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is a doctrinal church. We are defined by our doctrines. And uh, the minute you get rid of our doctrines, you know, there's no reason for the Seventh-day Adventist Church even to exist. Um, Ellen White stated that uh, we exist to proclaim the three angels' messages. And we should not allow anything else to absorb our attention other than doing that. And, uh, you know, at Secrets on Seal, we hear, hear all sorts of complaints uh, from all over the world by email, by snail mail, uh, on the phone, on the Internet, uh, Facebook, saying, you know, what has happened with the Adventist Church? We don't hear anything on the Three Hills of Message anymore, nothing on the sanctuary. We hardly ever hear the name of Ellen White mentioned in church. Uh, you know, and, and it's, it's a systemic issue that, uh, that permeates the entire church at this time. And so, uh, you know, in order to have a revival, we must recover our prophetic roots, our his historical roots. Um, I think that one of the reasons why uh, Protestants these days have lost their fear of the papacy is because they've changed the method of interpreting prophecy. See, they're all, they're all looking to the Middle East or the fulfillment of prophecy, a rebuilt Jewish temple and a real nasty individual sitting in the rebuilt temple for three and a half literal years. He's going to build a great big statue of himself, and the statue by a miracle is going to talk, and everybody's going to worship this great big statue, and he's going to give, put a tattoo on people's foreheads, you know. And, uh, and so, so basically the idea is the enemy is over there in the East. And meanwhile... Uh, the prophecy of the little horn and the prophecy of the beast, the harlot, are fulfilled in Rome in the United States. And they can't see it because they're looking in the wrong place. So they've thrown away the Bible method of interpreting prophecy and therefore they see no dangers in the papacy. And of course they've forgotten the papacy in the past. The papacy of the past is the same papacy of the present. Because you do not change the DNA of a system like this. Uh, the papacy simply has had a facelift. We can see the principles of uh, Babylon, the system at the end of time in the book of Revelation. We can see its principles in history. In Daniel chapter 2 and 3, we can see the true prophecy of Daniel chapter 2 with the various medals of the image given to Daniel. Daniel was able to explain in clear tones what that image represented and the truth behind it. 
Well, Nebuchadnezzar slept a few nights and he realized, you know what? I don't like that idea. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to change the understanding of prophecy and I'm going to put up a statue that looked a lot like the one I saw in my dream, but it's going to be all of metal, the one metal. It's going to be gold representing Babylon. And so the truth that Daniel proclaimed to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar changed and proclaimed to the world. And so what we're seeing in the Babylonian principles is that they have in history changed the interpretation of prophecy to fit their own means and desires. And we can only believe that the same thing is happening, as you said, in today's Babylonian system. And really what Nebuchadnezzar was saying is by putting up an image totally of gold, he was saying that history is not going to develop as God has said with several different kingdoms, but the Babylonian kingdom is going to be eternal. It's going to be the only one. That's why the image was totally of gold. And in fact, Ellen White says that the ones that came up with the idea of making an image were, were the wise men. But then Nebuchadnezzar said, I'll improve on their suggestion because they suggested to do it just like the one he'd seen in his dream. Nebuchadnezzar says, no way. I'm going to make it totally of gold from head to foot. And, and he was basically saying that the kingdom of Babylon will be eternal. And uh, that's exactly what, uh, what the United Nations and many of these entities today are thinking. You know, I want to add one more thing. We've been we've been picking on Protestants a little bit here, but uh, Adventists also have a problem in this area because in the ni- early 1950s, we cozied up to the Protestant churches. And there's one reason to cozy up to someone. You want to change their impression of yourself. You want to change their impression of you. You want them to think better of you than they already do. And I believe uh, the Palmer incident um, it demonstrates that that uh, they, they were very open to the Pope looking at them in a different light. We, we did the same thing when we approached, our, our leadership approached Donald Barnhouse and Walter Martin, and we cozied up to them, and we not only cozied up to them, we wrote a book that changed our doctrines. And so that's, that's another um, motive for cozying up to another faith, is that you want them to think differently about you, and they did de- think differently about us after that book. What's the name of the book? Questions on Doctrine. Yeah. Now you're into meddling, brother. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to mention, since this is the 4th of July, that we're you know, talking about the origins of our country and our form of government. Um, Thomas Jefferson and our forefathers, the ones who went through the revolution, remembered what was happening in colonial America. They remembered what happened in Europe. They understood the dangers of the papacy. And uh, 50 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, when people understood that this was going to be a special uh, day coming up, there were two, uh, three, actually three that were still alive. One of them was Thomas Jefferson, and one of them was um, uh, Adams, John Adams. They invited them to come to Washington for a special celebration for the 50th anniversary. Well, neither of them went. Uh, uh, They were actually both very feeble at the time. But um, Jefferson wrote in his answer to the folks who had invited him a very interesting letter. And he says, I'm just going to read a couple of sentences from it. When he's discussing the signing of the Declaration of Independence, he says... May it be to the world what I believe it to be, to some parts sooner and to others later, but finally to all, 
the signal of arousing men to burst the chains under which monkish ignorance and superstition had persuaded them to bind themselves and to assume the blessings and security of self-government. That form which we have substituted restores the free right of the unbounded exercise of reason and freedom of opinion. All eyes are opened or opening to the rights of man. The general spread of the light of science has already laid open to every view the palpable truth that the mass of mankind has not been born with saddles on their backs, nor the favored few booted and spurred, ready to ride them legitimately by the grace of God. These are grounds of hope for others. For ourselves, let the annual return of this day forever refresh our recollections of these rites and an undiminished devotion to them. And when I read these words, and I think of the way the Protestants have totally forgotten their history and are moving back to repeat the history that has happened in the past, and also the secular-minded person who believes that 4th of July is our freedom to barbecue it makes me very, very sad, especially when I read some of the comments in the news stories that I read today. The general public is moving in a very, very bad direction. Uh, you know, James Madison, 46 years after the Declaration of Independence was ratified and signed, uh, had something very interesting to say, and I'd like to read this. By the way, we, we hardly even addressed what the founding fathers of the United States had to say about uh, church and state. Uh, they had a lot to write about uh, separation of church and state. Uh, but this is what he wrote, 46 years after the American experiment had begun. Uh, we are teaching the world the great truth that governments do better without kings and nobles than with them. <laughs> and then he said, the merit will be doubled by the other lesson that religion flourishes in greater purity without than with the aid of government. <laughs> so there you have the two horns like a lamb. He's saying, listen, the government should govern in civil affairs and the church should handle religious affairs. And, uh, you know, he also said there is not a shadow of right in the general government, that would be the federal government today, to intermeddle with religion. Its least interference with religion would be a most flagrant usurpation. I can appeal to my uniform conduct on this subject that I have warmly supported religious freedom. And there are many, many other quotations that I shared uh, in the series that uh, we just finished last week of the Founding Fathers where they firmly believed in uh, civil and religious liberty uh, at the founding of the United States. Well, it's about time to, um, to entertain some questions, but let me just read you a statement, rather extensive statement uh, in concluding our discussion here. Uh, Great Controversy 441 and 442. And he had two horns like a lamb. Then she comments what this means. The lamb-like horns indicate youth, innocence, and gentleness, fitly representing the character of the United States when presented to the prophet as coming up in 1798. Among the Christian exiles who first fled to America and sought an asylum, now listen carefully, from royal oppression 
and priestly intolerance. They have church and state, right? Mm -hmm. Were many who determined to establish a government upon the broad foundation of civil and religious liberty. Their views found place in the Declaration of Independence, which sets forth the great truth that all men are created equal and endowed with the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the Constitution guarantees to the people the right of self-government, providing that representatives elected by the popular vote shall enact and administer the laws. Freedom of religious faith was also granted, every man being permitted to worship God according to the dictates of his conscience. Republicanism, that's a state without a king, and Protestantism, which is a church without a pope, became the fundamental principles of the nation. And now listen carefully to what she says. Have you ever read those statements from Ellen White where she says that national apostasy will lead to national ruin? Why? Because the United States will um, eliminate the secret of its prosperity. Let me ask you, what was the secret of Samson's strength? Trust in God, but he's his long hair, right? Uh, should he have kept that to himself? Yeah, but he didn't. And uh, when he gave up the, the secret of, uh, of his strength, he had a fall. Well, the United States also has a secret of her power and prosperity. Ellen White continues saying, These principles are the secret of its power and prosperity. Not because we have bigger armies and better weapons and more people and more territory and more beautiful places. None of that counts. She says the secret of the power and prosperity of the United States is found in the principles upon which this nation was founded. Then she says the oppressed and downtrodden throughout Christendom have turned to this land with interest and hope. Millions have sought its shores and the United States has risen to a place among the most powerful nations of the earth. And then she comments about the, the two horns, uh, actually this beast with two horns speaking as a dragon. She says the lamb-like horns and dragon voice of the symbol point to a striking contradiction between the professions and the practice of the nation thus represented. The speaking of the nation is the action of its legislative and judicial authorities. By such action, it will give the lie to those liberal and peaceful principles which it has put, which it has put as the foundation of its policy. The prediction that it will speak as a dragon and exercise all the power of the first beast plainly foretells a development of the spirit of intolerance and persecution that was manifested by the nations represented by the dragon and the leopard-like beast. And the statement that the beast with two horns causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast indicates that the authority of this nation is to be exercised in enforcing some observance which shall be an act of homage to the papacy. Such action would be directly contrary to the principles of this government, to the genius of its free institutions, to the direct and solemn avowals of the Declaration of Independence and to the Constitution. The founders of the nation wisely sought to guard against the employment of secular power on the part of the church, with its inevitable result, intolerance and persecution. The Constitution provides that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. 
and that no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. Only in flagrant violation of these safeguards to the nation's liberty can any religious observance be enforced by civil authority. But the inconsistency of such action is no greater than is represented in the symbol. It is the beast with lamb-like horns in profession, pure, gentle, and harmless, that speaks as a dragon. So we are now on the threshold of the deadly wound being healed. And the, that's Great Controversy 441 and 442. We are on the very threshold of the healing of the deadly wound, as we studied in the series that we, that we taped here, and of the papacy being freed from its captivity. And so these are exciting times to live in. And as Adventists, we need to wake up and we need to let the world know. Because if we don't let the world know about these things, if we don't let Protestants know about this, no matter how, how painful it might be and how much opposition we might suffer, God will hold us accountable. So we need to preach from the rooftops uh, civil and religious liberty. Okay, well, let's take some questions now. Please raise your hand if you have a question. And wait till the microphone comes, and uh, then uh, we will um, uh, attempt to answer the question. My question is in regards to the panel talked somewhat about uh, the ecumenical movement and some of the participants in it. My question is regarding to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, official Seventh-day Adventist Church, has it participated in the ecumenical movement in the past, in the present, or how do you see... What do you know about that? What can you tell us? I, I, I'm not aware that uh, we've participated in any of these events, certainly not in recent times. You know, there have been large gatherings, not only with Tony Palmer, but, but at the Vatican and other. We, as far as uh, political gatherings, we are uh, observers. We have observer status at the United Nations and uh, some of the subcommittees of that. We um, also uh, have observers and representatives working in the nation's capital. But as far as joining together um, uh, in a broad interdenominational ecumenical movement, now there are, without mentioning names, there are videos that I have seen of uh, pastors uh, that have participated in citywide ecumenical events one just up in Northern California a year or two ago, and I happen to know the pastor there during Holy Week where a Catholic priest uh, actually participated in an Adventist worship service. Um, but as far as denominational involvement, I'm not aware of any. Well, I think that probably the question has to do with uh, perhaps uh, certain things that have happened within the church um, uh, that uh, that can be documented, like, for example, uh, some Roman Catholic priests coming to teach some classes in the seminary at Andrews. Uh, that's documented. Also, the, the uh, parading of the Vatican flag at the St. Louis uh, General Conference session, uh, you know, giving a medal to the Pope. The, the, these, uh, these are all things that have been documented. And uh, I think that perhaps... Uh, you know, not to be critical of the individuals who came up with these ideas, uh, but it really, it really makes the church look kind of bad uh, to, to, for us to be doing these things. Um, 
because, uh, you know, we, we teach that uh, we are not supposed to uh, have relationships like this with the papacy. And then, you know, they, they prayed their flag across the general conference stage at the March of Nations. And they, you know, we have some uh, priests come and teach classes at the seminary and so on. So the motivations might be good, but um, I, I think that we need to be very careful about uh, what we do in that area. I have a question. You know, Europe has, Europe has been in the news lately with um, the breaking away of Great Britain. And I was wondering, is this actually a part of what we say, Daniel 2, speaking that they would not cleave together? Good point. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Amen. God's word is true, and it said they will not cleave one to another. And I believe that is still being uh, exposed in the power of God's word. I remember years ago when the European Union was first formed, um, Protestants were saying that um, this was a representative of the ten toes, uh, you know, in Daniel 2. But then more and more nations <laughs> became a part of that. And I think, you know, the last count that I remember is something like 30 nations of Europe were part of that. So obviously uh, the European Union was not really part of Daniel 2 at all. But, but I, I think the principle of the nations not staying together. And frankly, I look for maybe France, Germany, and some of the other nations. Holland will probably uh, exit as well here too. But you see, but behind the scenes, remember there's going to be a political union, a monetary union, and a religious union. There's going to be those three aspects there. And because when you have a common currency, a common government, and a common religion, it's much easier for a single power to control the masses. In the first segment, we were discussing the LGBTQ agenda and uh, how that's going to affect our ability to have religious freedom. I counter Protestant evangelicals. Um, well, they're not really Protestant, but they're evangelicals. They uh, who believe that they will in some shape or form be martyred by the LGBTQ um, agenda. And they believe that they um, will lose their, uh, their whatever, their freedoms, tax exemption freedoms, and all those kinds of things. And that's prophetic in what, what they're going to suffer. How would you help them understand the true biblical picture of how this, the union that they're forging with Rome right now is really the real danger? And this, how does that relink now to the LGBTQ um, play out right now in, in the news? There are two institutions that the devil hates more than any other. And uh, they are the institutions that were established in the Garden of Eden. One was established on the sixth day, and the other one was established on the seventh day. Uh, marriage. The fact that there, that there are so few marriages that are happy or stay together. The kids, you know, basically they're educated by the television. They only have one parent. Some don't have any parents. Uh, the devil has really made it a point to mess up marriage because he knows that the way the family goes, society goes, and the way society goes, the world goes. And he hates marriage because uh, it was one of the original institutions that got established in Eden. He also hates the Sabbath. 
And, you know, I was talking once uh, to uh, an individual. He was a Protestant. He wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist. And he was deploring, um, you know, the LGBT agenda, saying, you know, um, this idea that a man can marry a man and a woman can marry a woman. He said, that's an abomination. So I I played the devil's advocate a little bit. And I said, uh, uh, what's wrong with a man marrying a man? By the way, I believe that it's wrong. But, but, but I was I was playing the devil's advocate. So I said, I said, you know, uh, what's so wrong about a man marrying a man and a woman marrying a woman? He says, well, don't you believe the Bible? I said, well, of course I believe the Bible. He said, well, in Genesis it says that he made them male and female, and then God performed the first marriage. And I looked at him and I said, and what else did God establish in the Garden of Eden? See, uh, what the devil is doing through this uh, gay marriage agenda is softening up people for his real objective, which is getting rid of the day of worship. Because marriage, you know, it destroys society, but destroying the Sabbath destroys the relationship of people with God. And so the devil wants to, wants to eliminate uh, civil society, and he wants to totally eliminate reverence for God. And uh, those two institutions are the ones that he has his eye on. And he's, he's being pretty successful so far. And anyone who speaks against this uh, Sunday idea or, uh, you know, in speaks in favor of heterosexual marriage will be proscribed. And I believe that many of these Protestants will come over to, to God's side and they will lift up both of these. And we know that there's some individuals will be martyred for sustaining both of those. We are told that the last movements will be rapid ones. And I can remember it was in June 2015 when the high court decided that it was okay for men and women to marry men and women of the same gender. And it was only 11 months later that we learned that the uh, restrooms are now open for the transgenders. And that was only 11 months. And it was so fast to me that it, it did actually spin my head. But I wonder... How fast will it be in, our, in the next institution of, you know, the Sabbath and Sunday issue that we know is foretold in Bible prophecy? Interestingly enough, uh, the first decision of the Supreme Court uh, regarding uh, marriage was in uh, June 26 of 2014 when the Supreme Court struck down the Defense of Marriage Act. And it also uh, refused to change the ruling of the uh, court in San Francisco uh, on Proposition 7. Um, and then last year, June 26, same date, 2015, uh, was when the Supreme Court um, actually legalized gay marriage nationwide. And June 26 is my birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> I, I, I have a quick suggestion for your friend. Um, we're talking about liberty and, and freedom and being liberated from, um, from the crown. You know, that's what we're celebrating on July 4th. But what we really need to be liberated from is sin. And uh, Romans, Romans chapter 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, 
that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So your friend doesn't have to worry about being a slave to the government or to the LGBT movement. He needs to worry about being a slave to sin. And Romans 6 says we do not have to be slaves to sin any longer. How, how do you believe that 9-11 contributes to the changing of our freedoms? Or does it? it oh, boy, that we, we need an hour for that one. But uh, just very uh, quickly... Uh, a couple of days afterwards, the Dallas uh, Morning Star, I think it was called, or Dallas Morning News, uh, they, they did a survey of people, and they were you know, asking questions on the street uh, about um, would people be willing to give up some of their personal freedoms in exchange for a greater promise of security? And it was amazing that the majority of the people we're willing to let go of several personal freedoms uh, in exchange for this idea of security. Um, Satan is, is wanting to um, terrorize people. And it's interesting, um, you know, for the few months after 9-11, churches were packed, you know, more than they'd ever been before. And people were praying to God and patriotism and Guys with their pickup trucks were having big flags waving and the whole thing, you know. But that patriotic and religious fervor both died down fairly quickly uh, afterwards. But I think there is a correlation there. Um, and as we continue to see domestic terrorism and terrorism around the world, as we see a declining economy, uh, as we see natural disasters uh, and all of these things, um, people are going to cry out. Uh, for some kind of a solution. And anybody that can promise safety, you know, that's one of the things that Hitler did. He, while he pr uh, promised economic prosperity and other things too, you, you know, give up your freedoms, just do what I tell you and everything will be fine. So I think the two are related. Wasn't it Benjamin Franklin who said that he who is willing to give up uh, liberty for the sake of security deserves neither? Yeah, right. <laughs> Next question. Um, I had a question. It was, do you think that um, the Sharia law that is trying to be put into our legal system starting back east, do you think it, it's going to be a catalyst to take away our freedoms? You know, as, as I look at uh, the scenario Bible prophecy that you find in Revelation 13 and that you find in Revelation 17 and in the spirit of prophecy, um, some people have seen, you know, a menace fr from the Muslims, you know, the radical Muslims. Uh, they see them as being the dangerous uh, entity in end time prophecy. But really, um, both Bible prophecy and the writings of the spirit of prophecy tell us that the powers that are going to play a role in uh, curtailing the liberties of God's people at the end of time are apostate uh, Protestantism united with the papacy and with the kings of the earth. Um, I, I don't believe that there will ever be Sharia law. I mean, the Sharia law, the Muslim law imposed in the United States of America. Uh, however, I do believe that uh, there is going to be an infringement of religious liberty by the papacy influencing the government of the United States to impose Sunday observance and to forbid the observance of the Sabbath. That is the prophetic scenario, and that's what the devil is moving towards. 
because the devil hates the Sabbath. He wants to get rid of the Sabbath, and he's going to persecute everyone that uh, keeps the Sabbath. Uh, Ellen White says that if, if he could eradicate the remnant from the earth, his triumph would be complete. So that's his objective. Daniel wants to respond, I think, and I do too. Um, I, I do want to respond that there are a few communities back east, uh, individual cities that have actually, uh, I think Dearborn, Michigan, Michigan is one of the worst places, and that's what you're referring to, uh, have enacted Sharia law. But I think Pastor Bohr's point is that on a national basis, uh, that's not going to probably happen. Uh, Great Controversy um, makes the point that the major factors that are going to trigger uh, the Sunday law uh, is uh, economic decline, natural disasters, uh, and w there's a couple of others, but one of them is moral decline. And we're certainly witnessing that with the whole gay rights movement. And I, I think uh, the Christian right uh, is going to overreact to the immorality that we see in the country, and they're going to demand their legislators to fix something, and a way to fix a solution is people have got to get back to God, they've got to get back to church, we've got to get back to worship and all the rest. And I think those issues are far more significant than a Sharia law, although it may happen in individual places, but not nationwide. Uh, you know, when we talk about Sharia law and these, this, uh, Dearborn, Michigan, and so on, that is not the fullness of Sharia law, because if it was, there would be people killed for their religious convictions. So, so you know, it's a, it's a very much modified version, uh, but as far as, uh, you know, Sharia law as it's imposed in uh, Saudi Arabia or these uh, Eastern, uh, Middle Eastern countries, you know, I don't see that happening anywhere in the United States right now, and I don't foresee it happening because that's not the scenario that prophecy presents. I just wanted to read something that uh, illustrates what you had answered first in regard to Sharia law. We're told in um, Last Day Events, page 133.5, when our nation in its legislative councils shall enact laws to bind the conscience of men in regard to their religious privileges, enforcing Sunday observances and bringing oppressive power to bring against those who keep the Seventh-day Sabbath, the law of God will, to all intents and purposes, be made void in our land and national apostasy will be followed by national ruin. So there is the prophecy dealing with how it will close in regard to laws. Uh, we probably would have time to entertain one more question if uh, we, yes. My questions in regard to just kind of what you've already been talking about, but as Great Controversy points out in the book Great Controversy, once a Sunday law is passed, once we have the union of church and state and there's a Sunday law, that there will be a penalty of no buy or sell. My question is regarding that. Is there any indications already that there are things happening where that penalty is being applied possibly Ahead of that, I understand that great controversy that we're talking about, no buy or sell, that will be applied to indiv us individually. But is there anything that you see on the horizon that indicates that the United States or other organizations uh, are already using this power to influence and coerce? No, I don't know of any specific, uh, specific answer to your question. Uh, however, I do believe... I, I do believe that um, 
what is going to happen is there's going to be a way in which buying and selling will be controlled. Where some people say it's a microchip, it might be a credit card. There's going to be some mechanism whereby uh, buying and selling can be controlled. Uh, and I, I believe, you know, and I'm not a prophet, but uh, by what I've read, I believe that eventually the time is coming when we will live in a cashless society. And so it will be able to control uh, fully and completely buying and selling. I know I fly, for example, a lot on American Airlines and American Eagle, and uh, when they sell things on board, they don't receive cash anymore. And there, there are other places that don't receive cash. And so, uh, you know, I don't know of any specific instance in the United States now where people are forbidden from buying or selling, particularly because they observe the Sabbath. Ultimately, that law is going to be given uh, against people who fail to receive the mark of the beast and worship the image of the beast. We need to keep in mind as well that the national Sunday law that Revelation 13 refers to is preceded by other things. Uh, everybody is waiting for the axe to fall, but let me just remind you of what has happened in the last several years and already has happened in Europe and some communities in the United States. There is a sequence of events. First of all, there are Sunday closing laws. Um, I lived in a community in Iowa some years ago, Pella, which is a heavenly Dutch reformed community, that when Sunday came around, everything closed. Uh, I mean, it was like the sidewalk rolled up. Uh, you could not open a store, and you could be fined. You could be imprisoned if you did that more than once uh, because that was desecrating God's holy Sabbath or Sunday. Uh, so Europe right now in many countries, uh, Hungary, Austria, Germany, and others uh, have Sunday closing laws. And one of the reasons, by the way, they're doing that is the papal church is losing many of its members. They're no, no longer going to church. Some of these great cathedrals are almost empty uh, on Sunday. They're going to sport, sporting events or going shopping and everything else but going to church. So first of all, you have a Sunday closing law just for businesses. It's not directly related to religion. Then you have, and we're seeing this in Europe, you're having Sunday rest laws that uh, you should not work on Sunday. The idea is, oh, this is the time for families to spend together. We can't work seven days a week, you know, 24 hours a day. We're not machines. We'll break down. So for the good and betterment of society, we need to have a Sunday rest law. And those are already in place. And then the third leg in this stool eventually becomes the Sunday worship law. And it kind of follows that sequence there of the Sunday closing law, the Sunday rest law, and then eventually the Sunday worship law. Well, thank you very much for all the very good questions. Thank you for being here till the end. Um, we appreciate having an audience to um, celebrate this special weekend, Fourth of July weekend. And um, we hope and trust that God will keep us all faithful because trying times are ahead, folks. I believe that we are living in the last remnant of time. And we need to live piously, and we need to share with others the knowledge that we have of Bible prophecy, because people are uns have uncertainty. You know, people, they're, they're restless. They want to know, you know, what's happening. They hear of all these terrorist attacks that are taking place. You know, where are things leading to? Well, as Adventists, we know where things are leading to, and the cause and the reason. And so we can bring peace and, and tranquility to people by them knowing how this is going to end. 
So uh, maybe we can have a, uh, uh, the, an end of this session with a word of prayer, and uh, perhaps I could ask uh, my friend David Gian Grande if he would uh, end with a word of prayer. Oh, Lord in heaven, we thank you so much for the word that you've given to us, that we can see the things that are coming to be. We ask that you would guide us, keep us in your pathway. May we be prepared. May we do those things that you've uh, just wanted us to do from the foundation of this earth, that we might be instrumental in helping other people see how important these issues are. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.